0: Welcome to the Classroom in Your Living Room podcast. I am acting as your host. My name is Trisha Murphy, and I serve as the Development Director within the College of Education at MTSU. Now this is a a fun opportunity for us to connect with so many of our alumni and friends, and we know that so many of us are finding ourselves at home with children, juggling responsibilities, and yet still wanting to ensure that our students and our, our children are moving forward. We are here today with Dr. Katie Schroett, who serves as the Assistant Professor of Reading Education within our Elementary and Special Ed Department here in the College of Education, along with Dr. Amy Elliman, who serves as the Associate Professor in the Literacy Studies PhD program. Thank you both for being on today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. Of course. Well, we are in our second part of the two-part reading and writing series, and today we are digging into the importance of reading together and how reading really builds knowledge for any subject area. And as so many of us are preparing for summer break and, and still keeping in mind that we, we want our students to be prepared for their studies in the fall, we are going to dig into this important reading topic again. So Dr. Katie Schroech, thank you so much again for being on today. Might you tell us a little bit about what we can do as a family to really hone in on these skills?
1: Yes, well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm gonna kind of build off of the podcast from last week and this kind of idea of reading together and whether your child is young or old, um, I think there's a misconception that you only read with little ones, but hopefully you'll see some ideas for also reading with your teenagers or your preteens. I really think of reading together more like a time for reset and relationship building, almost like a form of mindfulness. During this stressful time, we have lots of things that we're balancing. And so I always think of this time, uh, we read right before quiet time in the afternoon, and then we read right before bed every time together, me and my kids. We might read a book like the book, Unplugged by Steve Antony. Um, and so this is one of my favorite books because there's a little character named Blip and Blip is always plugged into her computer. And one day when the power goes out, so she's a, she's a robot, um, Blip tumbles outside and finds out how good it feels to be unplugged. Um, and so we've had a lot of extra screen time during all of this pandemic. <laughs> um, I kind of feel like this is a theme that we started talking about. You know, what do we do outside? We stop for a really long time on this one page in the book. Where Blip and her friends are exploring outside. There's all these different things that they're doing. They're dancing, they're stacking sticks and all things like that. So I asked them, you know, okay, what do you notice, you know, about these pictures? What do you think about these pictures? What are they doing? And we we spend time talking uh, for a long time. So um Unplugged is like a book that doesn't have a lot of complex words. But it gets kids talking um, and thinking and making connections. And so I think we can spend a lot of time talking outside of the words on the book. And then another one that we've been reading a lot in my family is called Rescue and Jessica by Jessica Kinski and Patrick Downs. This is a nonfiction book. And it's the story of a girl who lost her legs in the Boston Marathon bombing. And I know it sounds crazy that I might be reading this book to my five-year-olds, but it's very delicate delicately addressed. And it's really focused on the details of how she came to meet her service dog, Rescue. When we're reading this book together, there's so much vocabulary and knowledge they learn about amputees and prosthetic legs and what is the role of a service dog versus a seeing eye dog. And there's so much discussion that happens around this. You know, my kids had never really talked about this before. And so it was, there's so much empathy building, knowledge building, storytelling that starts happening there.
0: And I know that those are certainly characteristics that we want our children to have in today's society, particularly when there is a tragic situation. I mean, even some might argue that right now we're in a situation where we want to build empathy for others and making sure others are well and, um, you know, being mindful of that. I love that lesson. And, you know, as I think about my time. As I sit down and read to my son, I wonder what are some of those specific questions or what are some of the things that we want to point out to them as we're going along? What, what can we do to help
1: them take in that time? One thing that I always tell my pre-service teachers, um, we do what we call interactive read aloud. And so the book is interactive. You know, it's not just for me to read straight through, but we have these pausing points or these stopping points. For example, in Rescue and Jessica, when she is first told that she's going to have to lose her leg, I mean, that's a pretty obvious place for us to stop and process. So I tell my students um, who are looking to be, be teachers to try not to stop more than three times that I kind of give them like a rule of thumb of three because we don't want to break up the comprehension too much by stopping all the time. But we also do want them to be able to stop and soak in all of this great information because we do want them to be reading some things that are a little bit complex for them. We want to build their knowledge. We don't want things just to always be simple. We want them to kind of grapple a little bit with some of these books, which is why I read Rescue and Jessica to my five-year-olds you know, even though it's a little high for them, but we stop, we talk, and it it builds a lot of conversation around that.
0: Mm, That's such good advice. Well, and right now, we are typically gearing up in my family to go to the farmer's market here in Murfreesboro, off the square, and go to the local library. Those things right now feel a million years away. So what would you share with parents about those kind of resources that we can take advantage of?
1: I know I got a little overwhelmed with the millions of emails that came in like, oh, you can get a free account here and a free account there and all these websites. Um, but I will say there's a couple that have really stuck out to me. So a little tip for what books you might read together is to pair a fiction and a nonfiction book. And Trisha, I heard you say you were reading *James and the Giant Peach* to your son. You could pair that book with a bunch of nonfiction texts about bugs. So you can pairing is kind of fun because you have that storytelling, but you're also building knowledge. And so on the Scholastic Learn at Home website, um, so on Scholastic's website, if you just Google Scholastic Learn at Home, they have a lot of those pairings and they have it from pre-K all the way up, I believe past sixth grade and they are pairing a fiction and a nonfiction book together. Um, and then they also have like a couple little activities all built around one subject. So it might be something like bugs or it might be something like rain or things like that. So that was, that's been a fun one. Um, also magic tree house has the, I'm sure you've heard of the magic tree house series. They have like a hundred books, but they also have like nonfiction fact tracker books that match with it. Might be reading the dinosaur book, the day of the dinosaur or something like that. And then there's a fact tracker one that's all nonfiction about dinosaurs. And those are readily available on the Libby app or any like overdrive app uh, that you might have. And they, they don't usually get like taken too fast because they're kind of older and there's so many of them that um, they're usually free to access pretty easily. So those are those are some of my favorite ones. Mm,
0: those are so good. Well, thank you so much for that advice. That's such a good tangible things that we can do as soon as we hang up the podcast, we can look into those resources. So thank you so much. Now, I know that you had um, another really great idea about how families can connect and maybe even in a neighborhood setting right now, even amidst time where we are digital only. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about that idea?
1: One of my ideas now, I have not done this in my neighborhood, so I really want to, but I am doing this with my nephew. We are doing a lot of learning over kid blog, but um, neighborhood and family book clubs. So as your kids are getting older, they may not want to sit down and read a picture book with you anymore, but... What they will want to do, at least my evidence shows that they do want to read with you still. So my sister-in-law and her family, they're all reading the Harry Potter books together. They'll have this dedicated time, you know, to read and she'll send me a picture of her and her daughter both reading Harry Potter and then allowing some student choice. So I love graphic novels and I know that some parents are like, all my kid reads is graphic novels. (laughs) And so I'm here to tell you like let them read the graphic novel let them choose some books and then read with them so if they have like a book that they are really excited about a chapter book then you buy it too and you read it with them or both of you together um, swap off reading chapters and have this time together so if you can get some friends in the neighborhood to do the same thing then you could have some zoom book clubs or you could blog about it over kid blog these are just great ways to build community to get your Student to read, just having them do it isolated, you're going to have a lot less, unless you just have that kid that loves to read, which, you know, bless you, I hope you do. <laughs> but one other recommendation is a Project Lit. It's one of my favorite grassroots literacy movements and actually started here in Nashville by a high school teacher. And they have book recommendations of book lists of high quality, new, high interest culturally sustaining chapter books. And so if you're ever wondering, okay, well, what does a kid want to read now? Um, that's a great place to go look for some recommendations.
0: Thank you so much for that. And that is such a great program, Project Lit. is, I think oftentimes when we think about reading, we think of it as an introspective or introvert's thing to do. However, so many of us are longing for connection. Can you tell us a little bit about how reading or storytelling really
1: does spark connection and talking, frankly? Yes, so um, one of my most favorite researcher quotes is that reading and learning, quote, float on a sea of talk. And so it's like talk is underneath everything. It, It shows students' oral language proficiency plays a crucial role um, in the acquisition of reading. So one of our favorite things to do at home is to look through baby books or look through old family photos or scroll all the way back and show your four-year-old son, this is with you when you were two years old and one years old. That has been a great launching pad for us to tell stories about our family, tell our kids stories about when they were little. And then it sparks them asking questions, telling their own stories. My nephew and I, I told you we are blogging on Kid Blog, And so I will blog a memory and then he will blog a memory. Um, and so those are really fun. He's in fifth grade. We have also done interviewing family members. We've called their grandma and cousins and we've interviewed them, asking them simple things like what's your favorite soda to drink or whatever. And then know more complex things like what was a day like for you when you were a kid like what did you do when you were a kid and so we found out from my dad that his grandma used to make him coffee milk is what he called it and so it was like basically milk but just a tiny bit of coffee in it and he thought he was big you know whatever he told my kids that and that then they wanted to drink you know coffee milk or whatever and so that is something that we can easily do right now um, over the phone or over Zoom um, and learn more about our families and tell more stories. And that's important.
0: I think those are the things that we are going to come out better for. You know, what are those bits of connection that we can cling to and really step into? I love that idea. So thank you so much for sharing that. Dr. Element. I'd love to talk a little bit today about how in the world do we sit down with maybe even an older student? Um, you know, we were talking about the littles a little bit with Dr. Schropp. But what do we do to really prep students as we sit down with them and engage in a narrative? What are some things we can do beforehand? When I think across no matter what age, it's really getting the child to interact with you and the text. Um,
2: I think... All learning has to do with not being a passive participant, but being an active participant. And that means that they may interrupt you during uh, the text. And that's a great thing. So if you're reading, if they're young and you're the only one reading, a lot of parents are like, shh, you know, I'm reading right now. And actually, you want them to interrupt and say hey, I thought of something. This this reminds me of this book that we read last week, or this reminds me of when we went to see grandma last week, and she said... That's exactly what we're looking for, because it's those connections that really help learning and understanding the text that they're reading and make them lifelong learners and want to engage in this activity their whole life. So we want to encourage those interruptions and those questions
0: about the text and the connections that they're making with the characters. Well, it's almost as if you've been hacking into my son's like video monitor. We do that with James. I mean, literally, we go every single page, and he has something to say or questions, and we're like, hey, you know, let's use your reading manners. And what you're saying is actually reading manners is digging into that, that information. I love that. This is the one time when, you know, you don't
2: want to talk about manners necessarily, I think. You want them to engage deeply and make this personal for them, because that's what reading ultimately is, I think, for all of us.
0: That's right. Well, what other rules can I set straight for James regarding that background knowledge?
2: Well, I love that uh, Katie already talked a lot about empathy, but talking about how the characters are feeling in the story and also noticing when they're not quite acting the way you think that they should act based on what the author's information is giving you. A lot of inferences make us note when characters aren't acting the way that they should. So you learn about empathy, but you also understand that this is how the author is giving you clues of what may happen next. So noting those in a narrative, I think, can be really important. Getting them to predict uh, what may happen next. And going back to the empathy, also, I think it's really important to talk to the, ask your children, how would that make you feel in this situation? How would you feel if this happened to you? Again, that personal, that deep connection, I think is important instead of just trying to get through the book as quickly as possible. Having those conversations at key points in the book, I think are really important.
0: Mm, Yes, I'm feeling very convicted. I am. Um, What are some other important elements to keep in mind as we consider context or just background knowledge of a narrative? Well, I think that building
2: background knowledge for all texts really is important because what we found in research, we know that word recognition is really important to reading. We know vocabulary development and the language pieces that Dr. Schrode is talking about, which are so important to develop early on and throughout development. Those are really important, but we've also found that background knowledge is extremely important to reading comprehension. We understand that it's important to read and comprehension of what we're reading now, both in narrative and in expository text or informational text. But we also know that it's really important for learning new topics in an area. So your prior learning is really going to determine how well you're able to learn a new area. And we're moving more towards understanding that better in education. Um, There's been a big push. Natalie Wexler has just written a book about the knowledge gap in education in the U.S. And we're really starting to understand how crucial it is to develop background knowledge, along with the other skills that we've talked about, But background knowledge is really important, and it takes a long time to develop well. Background knowledge helps experts to chunk information. They can see what's related in a topic that others can't see because they've had prior experience with that knowledge. And when you can chunk it, you can retrieve that information, and you can can play with it. You can understand it better. So when new knowledge is coming at you, you can deal with that information better because you've had some experience with it before. So there was a famous study, a baseball study, where they took good readers and less skilled readers in two groups, and half of each group knew a lot about baseball or knew a little about baseball. And What they found when they gave them a story about baseball, that the children who knew very little, of course, did not do well, but the kids who were less skilled readers by quite a bit than the good readers, by the way, outperformed the good readers by a good deal. So it isn't just your, your skills coming, your reading skills coming in. It's what you know about the topic that allows you to answer questions on reading comprehension tests or when you're learning in school. I like to think about you know, teaching content is teaching reading because it's going to allow you to understand your children, to understand things a lot better if they have experience with that knowledge. So, in my house, we, we spend a lot of time in project-based learning. Each summer, we've had a summer project. And I also believe in having very authentic experiences for kids because, you know, they need to uh, understand that their ideas and what they put together is valued by others um, and see them themselves as a producer of knowledge instead of just a passive um, recipient of knowledge. But to do that, you have to have structure to give them time and space to develop ideas of what they'd like to study, and then give them over time the support that they need. So for in our family, you get to choose your topic. Uh, which may change a little bit through the summer, but you pick your topic at the beginning of the summer. And then at the end, we have some sort of celebration and you could write a blog on the topic that you're working on. And that could be done over the summer or at the end. We've had uh, my little niece, she did a poster on deer one year. She also did a project on bugs. And then my kids have done things like how does empathy develop in uh, young children and what happens when it doesn't. We've had projects where my 13-year-old, actually, she had a dream board, so we developed dream boards with pictures of places we want to go, and she wanted to go somewhere beautiful and somewhere with a beach, so we gave her uh, some parameters of what the vacation could look like. She gave us these these three options, and she went through what the prices were on the hotel, and what what was there to do, and what was the food like, and the, the culture there, what could we see We actually did get to go on that vacation. Um, It was a great, wonderful experience for her because she sees herself as a person who can figure all of these tasks out. I I like those authentic experiences and we we tend to take our summer projects and I also have a summer project each year where I learn something new or try to learn something new and my kids get to see me attempt things that may be difficult because I think that's really important
0: for them as well. There's so many things about that that I think are important as we un- unpack what you just said. I have a lot of friends who who didn't do that that travel project until maybe their honeymoon. <laughs> oh no, we got to go this place. Who's paying for it? How are we going to fly there? Where are we going to stay? You know, there's a number of problem-solving skills that go into that, and, and then also, of course, the reading and writing elements of being able to take in this information, comprehending it, and then being able to thoughtfully prepare that for your review, which never hurts someone as an adult to be able to have that skill. But then also even thinking about it gets so helpful for our kids to see us fail, struggle, and persevere. Particularly, you know, I'm a millennial. I'm allowed to say this. I feel like we're in a generation that if things get too hard, a lot of folks give up. And so being able to acknowledge here that reading and writing can have so many wraparound benefits that we don't even, that, I mean, that's unprecedented in many circumstances. So I think that's so helpful. Thank you, Dr. Elman. Also part of
2: that building background knowledge, there are lots of resources out there right now. If you're putting a project together and this is where a child can become an expert in an area and develop a passion, right now some libraries have curbside pickup. There are also ebooks that you can get a hold of and I also like um, there's a great site called Lexiles and I really like their book finder. You can do an interest inventory for your child. So for instance, if your child likes dogs and magic, you can click those and then you can say at what grade level your child's reading and it will then populate many books that have to do with dogs and magic. It's a nice site to be able to give you an idea if they're going to be able to independently read that or if it's a little outside. Children who have Deeper background knowledge in an area can actually read at a higher level in that area than in other areas. So you can go a little bit above sometimes. But I think that it's helpful for um, parents to be able to kind of see what books would be appropriate if your child's going to be using these independently, especially.
0: Wow. And do you mind spelling that resource for us? Yes, it's L-E-X-I-L-E-S dot com, Lexiles.com. Yeah. You know, I think it's so overwhelming, even as someone like myself, who was an English major, I'm inundated with education and and child education. When you walk in a library and everything's alphabetical, you're like, okay, where do we even begin for this child? And, you know, are we going to go row by row? And it can feel overwhelming, even for those of us who who like this stuff. So that is such a helpful resource. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it can be
2: very overwhelming, even for myself to walk in, and I've been doing this a while, to walk into a bookstore and see everything. And it's really nice to go in. If you're doing project-based learning at home, you can go in with an idea that, oh, I'm interested in books about, you know, the beach right now. So it, it kind of gives you that focus that I think is
0: helpful. And knowing, you know, just like Dr. Shrote said of, oh gosh, you know, we love that author, you know, if James really does like James and the Giant Peach, if we could get through chapter 19, everybody, maybe he would have a favorite author. And then we could go back to the library and check out others. And, you know, we did that with Pete the Cat forever. But that's the thing. You know, they get into these little niche areas that we want to encourage them in and cheer them on in that little area. Well... I know that this is a reading and writing series. And as an English major, I would not be able to sleep tonight if I didn't touch on writing a little bit more. Dr. Element, what do you have to say about writing, whether that is for these preschoolers or even on up into the middle and high school levels? What can we do related to writing right now? There are so many
2: pieces that you can do. I just talked about the project-based learning, which has writing usually involved with it in some manner because you're presenting your findings to someone, but I like the ideas of um, blogging or having a family blog where you may write and then they write. You could do this from your pet's viewpoint, but there are lots of free sites to start a blog like that. I think that that is a way to keep students writing over the summer and that it's fun. Right now a lot of older people in our neighborhoods and family members are not able to see people, so actually getting mail, um, writing traditional, you know, old-fashioned letters would be a great way at any age for for children to stay connected with others. I also, even when my kids were little, we would have a notebook. So in the morning, um, they would see a note from me asking a question, and then they would respond to that, and we would keep that going. So depending on you know what the development of the child, it's a great way to stay uh, connected.
0: Yeah, oh, that's so good. Well, you've touched on many great tangible tips both of you have. Are there any other little tiny habits that we can implement this summer as we prepare for whatever the fall brings us?
2: One of our biggest issues every year is really the scheduling and supporting the kids to make sure that we're getting our projects done, that we're reading every day together that we're about to implement our book club, all of those are going to require time and deadlines, um, parameters. I think that kids need those parameters, but it's hard to figure out how to make it work because you want to make it work. But there's so many things that get in the way, especially over the summer. Lately, I've been reading a great book by B.J. Fogg out of Stanford called Tiny Habits. And what he says is there are really three parts to a habit that um, can make it stick and make it stick quickly. One is to to stack habits. So you identify a habit that's already existing in your life. So any place where you can see in your life that you consistently do a behavior, at the end of that behavior, you stack another habit you want to form on top of that. So for instance, after lunch, as an example, after you put the dishes away or whatever your routine is, that's where you have 15 to 30 minutes for your project. So the the kids know for these 30 minutes, they need to pull materials or they need to read on their, their project. And Dr. Fogg is really clear about this, that it needs to be small so if it's too big, people don't want to do it because it's going to take up too much time. It's going to be too difficult. But if you only spend 15 to 30 minutes, that you're, you know, that's a time period where you're like, I'm just going to dedicate that much time. And for younger kids, it could be much smaller, like five to 10 minutes. Usually when people engage in an activity, they'll continue it once they're going. So you may get more. You may have your child actually ends up spending an hour, but they only have to spend a short period of time. And then the next day, They're going to go back to that because they're like, okay, it's only 30 minutes. I can do 30 minutes or it's only 10 minutes. I can do that. And then the last part is to celebrate that habit. So after you're done with that 15, 30 minutes, or if you go longer, when you've worked on your project for the day, give each other a high five. On the calendar, put a smiley face saying, hey, we did this. Look, you know, we got this done today. That's awesome. Or kids love streaks. So put an X each day that you do it and see how many streaks can you get. So that keeps a behavior going and makes the schedule and also makes it fun for for kids, I think.
0: That is such good advice. And you're exactly right. We have something similar going on in our house that has that streak kind of mindset And you're right. They notice when you miss the day. They notice when they have every day and kids love to celebrate. And I think that's one of the things I love most really about about any people. We all we love to be in something together. And right now, you know, we're in we're in something together. So why not just celebrate where we can? I think that's such such good advice. I want to thank you both again, Dr. Schroett, Dr. Elliman, for your time today as we really end our two-part mini-series on reading and writing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I invite you all to stay in touch with us online through our social media platforms by phone and, of course, email. Um, All of my information is on the website and as well as in the resources portion of this podcast. I'd love to hear from you and hear how these tips helped. Um, Again, this is Tricia Murphy, and you've been listening to the Classroom in Your Living Room podcast.